Uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 1 again today, so we're going to be, if you want to go ahead and grab your Bible and turn there, you can. And again, if you did not bring it, I'll be posting some of these passages uh, up on the screen. We're going to be hanging out in verse 18 through 21 today. And uh, the question that the text is going to answer is essentially this question probably that a lot of us have been asking today, but what in the world is wrong with the world? Right? Anybody else asking that question today? We, we talked about it a little bit this past week, but it seems like every time you get online or you may have an interaction with a stranger or some people that you see, um, you know, in the community or something like that, it just feels like people are on edge. There's a lot more anger than there used to be. Um, conversations quickly turn into arguments nowadays, and uh, you cannot have political dialogue without it turning into World War III. And uh, it's just, it's an absolute, there's new viral videos going out every single day of people blowing up people, uh, you know, who happen to be just working at their favorite store or whatever. But I think it brings up this question that a lot of us are asking, what in the world is the problem with the world today? Uh, This past week, it was the question that was posed on Quorum. Quorum's a uh, message board that asks questions. There's a lot of dialogue. And so that was the question that was posed. And I thought some of the, the responses I thought were pretty interesting. But one person wrote and he said, the problem with the world is greed. Like, that's what it all can be boiled down to. It's corporate greed. It's individual greed. It's national greed. It's, and, you know, they, they identified that. It's just all about greed. Another person wrote in and said, okay, well, everything is wrong in the world today. They went on about it. And they're like media, politics, abuse, education, et cetera, et cetera. But it all comes down to just one thing. We have neglected and abused Mother Earth. Right? And for her, like, that was the big thing. We've, uh, that's the big problem. We've neglected and abused Mother Earth. Other people wrote in and said, well, it's uh, ch- people trying to control other people's lives, government control, two-party system, insert your politician of choice, and that's the real problem with the world. Uh, this happens to be the question that a London newspaper asked in 1905. Right? So this is the beginning of the, just before World War I came in. But even back then, over 100 years ago, people are looking around at the world, and they're going, hey, our world is getting crazy. People are angry. Uh, there's wars breaking out all over the place. And this London newspaper asked this question, and the newspaper said, what's wrong with the world today? And they invited people to write in their different responses. And it was there that G.K. Chesterton's response became incredibly famous, and it's one that many of you may know today. But very, very famously, he just wrote in a simple response. And he said, dear sirs, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. And a little bit later in one of his essays, he would follow up and he would write a little bit more about it, but that day was very, very simple. But later later he would write in and he would say this, until you're able to say those two words, every bit of activism that you engage in will be nothing more than a hobby because you'll only be calling for government reform when the fact of the matter is it's you and it's me who need reform. And with that, I'm pretty sure like Chesterton went viral in 1905, as much as you can go viral in 1905, but... Everybody clung to that response. It went, it went crazy. A few years later, he would write a book that was entitled that, by that same question, What's Wrong with the World Today? And it's a book that many of us are still dialoguing with today, but it's so popular because I think that deep down inside, every single one of us know that we are the problem. And we may not be able to identify specifically how we're the problem or why we're the problem or be able to name the things that are inside, but that's what Paul's going to help us with today. And so I want to jump into this text because Paul's going to get very specific, more than just saying, hey, sin's the problem in the world, 
generically, I'm the problem in the world, you're the problem in the world, people, that's this, that, and the other. He's going to get very, very specific in here, and that's what I want to jump into today. And so we are going to get to some of the solutions and not only talk about problems, but to get to the right solutions to the problems in the world today, we first got to be able to name and articulate the problems that we're seeing. And that's where he takes us in the latter part of Romans chapter 1. So we're going to pick it up in verse 18, but don't forget the main thesis of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Uh, We've talked about this the past uh, three or four weeks, really, I guess now, but um, he says this, and this is the main thesis of of Romans, Uh, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he says, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, for in it, the righteousness of God has been revealed from faith and for faith. Um, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so that's 16 and 17. He gets into 18, and 18 is essentially a response to the inevitable question, okay, so why should we live by faith? And he picks it up in verse 18, and he says this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Okay, so why should we live by faith today? Well, because the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, When he talks about those two things, ungodliness and unrighteousness, it's important that we understand these are two separate things that he's talking about right here. And it's important to understand if we're going to articulate the problem right here. But ungodliness is talking about the vertical relationship that we have with the Father. Some translations are going to say godlessness there. Uh, But the word, the Greek word is hasabian, and it's a word that simply means irreverence. Okay, so it's a a vertical problem with our attitude towards God. And he's saying this is a massive problem throughout humanity. We have a vertical brokenness here where we do not revere God. We do not identify, we do not honor him as God or even give thanks, as he's going to say a little bit later on. But fundamentally speaking, this is a vertical problem in how we think about and how we view God. The second one that he says is unrighteousness. And some translations are going to simply say uh, wickedness right here. And uh, essentially, this is a breakdown in the horizontal relationship that we have with one another. And so the first one is a breakdown of the vertical relationship and how we think about God. That comes in and plays out in the, in the horizontal brokenness that we have with one another. The word that he uses is hadikian, which literally means injustice or it's moral wrongfulness. And so this is the thing that you're going to pick up the paper, or you're not going to pick up papers anymore. You're going to read about it online or whatever it may be, and you're going to read these horrifying stories, uh, and they're going to be unjust stories. They're going to be violence against other people. There's going to be all these uh, traumatic things that we read about, and that's what Hadikian, right? It's the unrighteousness. Um, it's the moral wrongfulness and the hurt that we experience in the world. And so he's saying right here that there is a relationship between how we view God and horizontally how it plays out with one another. And so part of what we're seeing here is that there is also a present tense wrath of God, which is being revealed right now in response to unrighteousness and in response to ungodliness. Now, it's important that we understand that when we talk about wrath right here, it's not wrath as we typically think about. Uh, We will be talking about eternal wrath in the chapters to come. And that's definitely a part of the wrath of God. Uh, nevertheless, we're going to see this a little bit more clearly spelled out in the verses ahead. But in, uh, he's going to repeat the same thing in verse 24, 26, and 28. So he says this. He says, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of, lust of their heart to impurity. Verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind. What is the wrath of God, the present day wrath of God that we're looking at right here? God gives them over to do the things that they've decided in their heart to do. Three different times he says the exact same thing. So it's not eternal wrath, fire, and damnation at this point in this particular section right here. Um, He's talking about how sometimes God in his wrath simply goes, hey, you want to go this way? I'll let you go that way. 
You want to give in to the temptations. You want to give in to your natural desires. You want to give in to certain things. Fine, we'll we'll let you go that way. But here it is. It's not going to work out as you think it's going to work out. There's a divine design that's taking place here. It's not going to work out as you think it's going to work out. In many respects, what we're seeing right here is, the, is an overly simplistic answer to the problem of evil, which has tripped up many people from the very beginning of time. How can a good and holy, all just, all loving God allow so much evil to persist in the world today? And very simply, he's just going to simply say, well, because I'm letting you do what you want to do. I'm letting you be you, and I'm letting me be me. And, and, so, and so he gives us our freedom. And as much as we love our freedom, we do understand there is fallout that comes with freedom, especially when our freedom takes us a path that does not align with the thoughts or the heart of God and everything that's good and right as he defines what's good and right. And so that's a major part of what we're seeing play out. And so the question is, why should we live by faith? Verse 18, because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. He continues here, and I want you to see how he defines this. He says, it's against people who, by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. Okay, so if you're a note taker here, maybe you've got your little scripture journal we passed out there. Uh, This is the section you want to highlight, circle, or or something like that. It's where it says suppress the truth. Um, This is what it all comes back to. We are a people who know the truth. Uh, We can see the truth, but by nature, we inevitably will suppress the truth. And so when we talk about suppression of truth right here, it's important to understand this is very different than ignorance. A lot of us want to ask, well, what about people who have never heard? What about this? What about those who just had no idea? And what Paul's saying right here through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is there is no such thing as real ignorance when it comes to the knowledge of God. What he's saying here, it is different than ignorance. Ignorance says, hey, I had no idea. I can't be held responsible to something I had no idea. How in the world was I supposed to know? Suppression says uh, there is a truth. It is knowable. It's here. There is evidence right in front of your face. He's made himself known. But I'm going to take what's known and I'm going to push it to the side because I really don't want to deal with what I can know. That's suppression. It's kind of like suppressing a beach ball in the pool, right? You try to you see how long you can keep it under the water. Inevitably, it's going to shoot right back up because the beach ball is meant to live on the surface. Truth is meant to live on the surface. And by nature, humanity loves to take that truth and shove it down underneath the water so that we do not have to be confronted with that at all. I love the way Tim Keller tries to illustrate this, but he shares a story about General Patton from the end of World War II, but evidently the Allied forces at this point in time, they have just liberated one of the first concentration camps in Ordorf, Germany. And so the Allied forces, they go in there. The Nazis were trying to cover up all the carnage from that concentration camp uh, um, and, and everything you would, you would find there. And, uh, but before they could cover up everything, General Patton and his men, they moved into this concentration camp And they saw with their very own eyes what they'd heard about for so long. And Patton talks about this, but he says, like, it was just, it was just gruesome. He's like, the scene, it was like, we heard about it, but like hearing about it doesn't do justice to seeing the carnage that's right in front of you. And he says, me and my men, like, we got sick. We could not see the things. It was so sickening to see what was taking place, and he was horrified by it. And so he calls the mayor of Ordorf along with, um, along with his wife, and he brings him to the camp and he simply shows them everything here, and he says, this was happening in your backyard. Did you know? And of course, the mayor and his wife, they thought, we had no idea. We had no idea. And of course, Patton's sitting there going, I, I don't believe you, uh, right? You knew what was happening in your, back, in your backyard. And so what he did is he commanded the, the, the mayor and his wife and every able-bodied Nazi offered, officer to go and to dig graves for everybody that was there that day, because the next day they were going to have a, a formal funeral service and honor the men, women, and children whose lives have been lost. 
And so that's what they did. The next day, they had all these graves that were, that were ready, and they were about to have the funeral service, and the mayor and his wife were supposed to show up, but um, they did not make it that day, and I'll spare you the, the specific details of why. But they went back to their residence, and they found a simple little letter which simply said this, we knew, but we didn't know. We, 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 we didn't know, but we actually knew. And it's just, and that's what he says, right? That's exactly what Paul is saying right here. We had, we, we knew, but we don't really know because we, truth of the matter is, we didn't want to know. That's what Tim Keller says. He says, when it comes to the knowledge of God, we know about the knowledge of God, but we don't really know because truth of the matter is, deep down inside, we don't, we don't want to know the truth. And it's exactly what Paul's getting at here in this text. He's saying he's made himself known, church. He's made himself known, verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. In other words, like we should be able to look at the beauty and the complexity of creation and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that complexity always, always, always it points to design. We should be able to look around at the world and, 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 and the unique ways that things have been made. We should be able to stare at the stars in the heavens and know beyond a shadow of a doubt there's a designer on the other end of these stars. It's what David's singing about in Psalm 19. He's going to say this. He says, the heavens declare the glory, the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. In other words, uh, every single day when I look at the stars, I see an eternal God. When I stare through the Hubble telescope and I just see that the universe keeps going and going and going and going, it screams of the reality of a divine and eternal God who spoke these things into existence, right? That's what he's saying. When I see the, the sun come up and go down in a predictable pattern year after year after year after year, it screams of design. It's why he says they are without excuse. We're without excuse because he's made himself known. Uh, I've tried to illustrate it like this, but uh, i never forget a number of years ago, I had the chance to do a friend's wedding. It was a destination wedding on top of Copper Mountain in Colorado. It was one of the only weddings I've done in the snow. It was a beautiful wedding, but, um, but I remember going up that day. It was uh, the day before the wedding. We were doing the rehearsal, and I'm up on the chairlift, and I'm going up this mountain. People are skiing down below, and I'm on the ski lift, and I look down, and I notice like, somebody had carved in the side of the mountain in the snow, I love you, Julie. Will you marry me? And I remember looking at this thing, and I've told you guys this story before, but I remember looking at that thing, and, and like two things crossed my mind. I thought, immediately thought to myself, man, I feel sorry for every Julie riding up this train today, like with her boyfriend, and like that's not the right Julie, right? Like that would, that would be really, really terrible. She's like, yay, we're getting married. And he's like, no, that was not for you. So I um, felt terrible for, for, for all the Julies that were riding up there. But the other thought that crossed my mind was like, wow, what a beautiful expression of love. This man loves this girl named Julie so much. He carved it in the side of this mountain. He, he did it in a way that was going to propose marriage to her. Uh, like it was a beautiful thing. What, what never crossed my mind was, wow, can you believe that the snow fell in such a way that, uh, that, it, that it created these specific letters and these letters created words, and these words came together in sentences, and they come together, and they formed a complex thought in English at a specific time that actually communicated marriage for this person, Julie, that was on purpose and intention. Like, it never occurred to me to think, wow, what an incredible cosmic accident. Like, that would be absurd to think about because we understand complexity, it always points to design. There's someone behind the complexity in which we see the world. 
It's exactly what Paul's saying right here. He's saying, I've made myself known. All you have to do is open up your eyes and look around, and then you're going to see the odds are not in your favor. This is some sort of a cosmic accident. Uh, Francis Collins, one of the leading scientists in the world today, he marveled at the complexity of the universe, right? For him, faith in science is not a tension. Science confirms a lot of the things that God has already set into motion. But for him, he just marveled at the complexity of the universe. He said this, when you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. There are 15 constants, the gravitational constant, various constants about the strong and weak nuclear force, et cetera, et cetera. And they all have precise values. If any of these constants were off by even one part in a million, or even some cases by one part in a million million, then the whole universe could not have come to the point where we see it today. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would, not, there would have been no galaxy, no stars, no people, and no planets. I mean, honestly, church, like, just think about the odds of a fully sustainable planet today an intelligent life coming together through some sort of a cosmic accident. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but it's just not how much faith would it take to believe that this much complexity, this much intentionality happened to come together by chance. You got to understand, like the best of secular minds, secular mathematical uh, scientists, they, they tried to calculate the odds of this whole thing. You know what they came up with? The odds of that coming together by accident are one in a trillion trillion. You know, that's, it sounds like dumb and dumber when he's like, oh, so you're telling me there's a chance. You know what I mean? Like he's, saying, he's saying, no, like there's no chance of that. These are essentially scientists being like, yeah, it ain't happening. Like that's what they're saying. Like that's not a probable thing. It makes no logical, reasonable sense to say, you know what, probably cosmic accident. When you see complexity all around you, it points and it screams of an intelligent, eternal, divine designer behind the entire thing. And church, it's exactly what Paul's saying right here. All you, it's why you're without excuse. And this is just how God has revealed himself to us in creation. I mean, we can look around and look at the philosophical arguments, the arguments from morality, the cosmological, the ontological argument, all the different evidences that point to the reality of God. But his entire point right here is this. None of it would matter because the problem with humanity is we would look at it, we would see it, and then we would choose to suppress the truth. And so he continues in he says in verse 21, it just goes downhill from here. And we see this play out in the rest of Romans chapter 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They don't worship, in other words. In other words, they see him, they know there's a divine, intelligent being here. And they're kind of going, mm, well, maybe, give or take it. They don't worship him. There's no gratitude when we pray. We come around the dinner table and it's a mindless exercise we go through. There's no real gratitude that God is a provider that's given to us in the season of time. There's no real worship and submission to the one true God in the middle of this thing. So he continues and he says, instead they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And church, it's exactly what we see all around us today. Futile thinking and hearts that are darkened and foolish all around us every single day. And so here's the temptation that we're going to run into as we read this section of Romans. The temptation is that we're going to cling to all this they language that Paul's getting at here in this text. And you're going to pick up on this and you're going to say, they, 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 the world, the world, the, the foolish pagans, the ones who have rejected God outright. And our temptation is to be like, yeah, that's what's wrong with them. That's what's wrong with them. But Paul's not going to let us get away with this arrogance. In chapter two, he's going to come and be like, why are you guys being so judgmental, Christians? You who follow Christ, why in the world are you being so judgmental? Don't you remember that is where you used to be before you came into a right relationship with the one true God, but it is also how you continue to live today. You who, do such, you who uh, abhor such things and have a habit of doing many of the same things today. 
And so I want us to sit here and I want us to avoid the temptation of saying, hey, those people out there, they reject them, they reject them, they suppress the truth, they, 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 because the reality is that we often find ourselves in the same place. And what begins out there often finds its way in here, even inside the church. And then we too become people who also suppress the truth. I mean, think about the number of different ways that this plays out, even in Christian circles, even inside the church today. Think about the ways that we think about and talk about um, really the exclusive truth claims of Jesus Christ. Meaning when Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the Christ, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Exclusive truth claims. We don't like it. It's not a popular thing today. And so we we know some of the stats, somewhere around 60% of our country still acknowledges faith in Christ. They identify as a Christian. Somewhere around 63% of the population agree with the statement that many different religions can lead to eternal life. There is no one true faith. Even among active practicing Christians, you got to understand, 28% strongly agree that all people pray to the same spirit or same God, no matter the name that they choose to pray to. Church, does that even make any sense? Would that ever work in your marriage? Nah, just whatever, I'm just going to make up whatever name I want to call you here and, and think that it's going to communicate the exact same thing or that I'm speaking to the same person. It, it doesn't make any sense. Meanwhile, Jesus is coming in here and he's clearly saying, here's the truth. I am the way. I am the truth. Jesus says, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts is going to say the same thing. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which mankind may be saved. And so the truth of God's word is saying one thing right over here. It doesn't work well in the culture in which we live. And so we suppress that truth. And there's a growing contingent even within the church here today that's saying, you know what? Really doesn't matter. I mean, Jesus is true for me. I love Jesus. Like Jesus is great. I love Jesus. He's wonderful. He works, he works well for me. But I'm not going to say that, it's like he, that he's the one true God or anything like that. And so we say all kinds of crazy things like, hey, Jesus is awesome. I love him. Great moral teacher, man. Awesome teacher. I'm going to follow his ways. The cross, great example for how to live. And it's absurd when you think about it, church, because like the cross is not good news unless it accomplished something beautiful on our behalf we, we could not do for ourselves. It is not an example for how to live. Like it is actual atonement being made for you and for me. I mean, think about this. Imagine I'm walking down the street with my son, Caleb. We're holding hands, having a great conversation. All of a sudden, I turn to him and I say, hey, buddy, I love you so much, and I'm going to prove to you how much. And then all of a sudden, I jump into oncoming traffic. Like, he would be traumatized by that experience. He's not going to look at that and be like, wow, look how much my dad loves me. He's going to go, what's wrong with you? He's traumatized by that. Church, the only way that is loving is if he is standing in the middle of the road, oncoming traffic is coming to him, he has no idea, and in the middle of my love for him, I jump into that place, push him out of the way, and my life is substituted for his. Church, that is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's gonna continue in Romans 6, and he's gonna say, the wages of our sin is death. In other words, the, the wages of our suppression of truth, the wages of our rebellion against him, unrighteousness, ungodliness, the culmination of this thing, the wages of our sin is death. However, while we were still sinners, Christ in his infinite love for us came and he died on our behalf. He showed us how much he loved us by coming and dying on our behalf. That is the truth of the gospel. But here it is, church. It's not what many of us are believing today. Increasingly, like this is not what many of us are believing today. And what Paul's saying is, it's futile thinking. It's futile thinking. 
and our foolish hearts are becoming darkened because we're not thinking right about our vertical relationship with God and it's coming out and it's having horizontal implications in the world all around us today. I mean, church, you got postmodernism. That's the world in which we're living in today, right? You know what? This is the tenet of what we are believing today philosophically and our kids are growing up in today. But that's what this is. It's postmodern. It's this view that says there is no such thing as knowable objective truth because we are all limited by our experiences. So at best, we can only know what is true for ourselves. In other words, since I can't know everything, like we can, we're never going to be able to know the truth. And of course, the fallacy in that is it denies that there's a God who created everything else who has made himself known. It assumes that that never took place, that God's word is not the knowable uh, word of God, his truth given to us for us to know him by. It assumes that we can't know him at all through creation or any of those kinds of things. But this is the world in which we're living in today. And it's denying that you and I have the capacity to even know or understand any truth. It's why 35% of Generation Z today now believes that what's true for you isn't necessarily true for me. And they go on and argue and articulate that you cannot be wrong about something that you honestly believe to be true. Church, 35% of our young people today believe that. You cannot be wrong about something that you honestly believe is true. Can you think about that statement for just a moment? It's absurd. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any logical sense. There's a growing number of Americans. This is all coming from Barna, by the way. Researchers and uh, polling people, listening to people. A growing number of Americans see morality as a matter of cultural consensus today. It's not, obje- it's not objective. It's not something that you can look at or surrender to. It's a matter of cultural consistent- consensus, which worked out fantastic for the Jews in Nazi Germany, did it not? Or slaves throughout the history of our world where people looked upon them based on the color of their skin, they thought them not to be a true human being. But that was cultural consensus. And we look at this and we say, you know what? That makes sense. We're morality, objective truth, it's, it's based on cultural consensus today. Church, that's postmodernism. It's the worldview that we live in today. It explains some of the gender conversations that we're having today, does it not? A couple years back, I had a fascinating conversation with my kindergartner. We were coming home from school. I picked him up, had a great day at school. How was your day? Loved it. What was your favorite part? Recess. Okay, what was your second favorite part? Lunch. Okay, what was your third? You know, we're kind of going through that thing. And, and I was like, well, tell me about your day. I was like, was anything weird or off, off or anything like that? And he goes, you know, I'm just going to make up some names here and stuff. But he goes, you know, Billy came in and Billy said he wanted to start being called Sally. And, and I go, what? And, he's, and he goes, yeah, uh, he, he wanted us to start calling him Sally. And he says he's a girl. And his mom came in and said that he's a girl. And he goes, Daddy, it's really weird. Like, he's not a, he's not a girl. He's a boy. I, play, I, I, I don't understand and stuff. Kindergarten. Having a conversation with my son in kindergarten. And we pull over the car. And, and, and I had to make sure that I was hearing this right. And we talk about it. And he explains it a little bit more to me. And I finally pulled him aside and I said, buddy, I was like, here's what you need to know. For the rest of your days, you need to understand that there's going to be a lot of people that are very, very confused about what's true in the world. And it does not mean that you need to be tr- confused about uh, truth or who you are in what light of what God has said is true about you. 
And we opened up the Bible. We had this great conversation of like, this is God has revealed himself to you and to me. He has made us in the image of God, male and female. He has created us. He has created you to be this great thing. We talk about all these things. And I said, God loves that boy. And don't you dare let anyone diminish him as an image bearer of God. We got into the truth of that. Don't you dare let anyone pick on him. If anybody's picking on him, you go over and be his friend. As a Christian, we're called to love people who agree with us, people who disagree with us, people who oppose us, people who are on our same team. You go and you love that kid, but just because he's confused about who he is does not mean that you need to be confused about who you are. You can love people where they are in disagreement and in antagonism. You can know who you are because of God's self-revelation of himself to us in creation, in the truth of God's word. I'm going to, I didn't say all this to him right there, but I'm kind of going off to you right now. But, but like, that's what we're getting at to your church. And what, what Paul's saying here is that like, there's futile thinking and you got to understand that it's not just them because what begins out there often makes its way in here. And then we too, even in the church, we become suppressors of the truth. And we've got to pay attention to some of these things. Church, if you don't know the truth, you will be caught up in this and you will un- inadvertently becoming, become a suppressor of the truth. I mean, think about some of the things that we talk about today. Cancel culture. It's huge, is it not? It's not biblical. We get that, right? As great as it is to cancel someone that you disagreed with a long time ago, hey, they wore the wrong Halloween costume 30 years ago in high school and stuff like that. They're no longer, you know, can have their job or whatever it may be. I get that there is, a, that there is, that there is character that comes in over time, but like in as much as we have a chance to repent, it is not who you are today. The Bible's going to be very clear. There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Church, cultural Marxism is coming into our culture today. It is a very real present threat. Again, it confuses the matter by oversimplifying our identity and saying you are either either a part of an oppressor group or one of the oppressed and defines these different kinds of things. And it sounds great because biblically we're looking at things and you're going, is it true that people are oppressors? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like all throughout scripture, you see oppression take place since the garden. Is it not? I mean, it's taking place from the oppression is very real. Do people abuse power? Yes. Should they be called out? Yes. Are there people who are oppressed? Absolutely. It's the entire Sermon on the Mount. Is Jesus's heart with the oppressed? Absolutely. No doubt about it. He's saying, elevate, be a voice for the voiceless. Like lift these people up. Yes and no. Here's the place where we go wrong. Your identity is not that. That's not who you are. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our identity is not in oppressor or oppressed. Our identity is in Jesus Christ. And Paul's going to remind us that in Jesus Christ, like you have been crossed, you have crossed over from death into life. You are a brand new creation in Jesus Christ. Colossians is going to say uh, you, you've crossed from death into life. Uh, Jesus is going to say you've been born again. John's going to say you've been given the right to be called a child of God. In other words, like you're not oppressor versus oppressed. You've been brought into a brand new family. You've been given the right to be called a child of God, brand new identity. To the church in Philippi, you're a citizen in heaven. To the church in Ephesus, you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of doing good works, which he's already prepared in advance for you to walk in. Church, that's who you are. Paul's point in Romans that you have been purchased and redeemed by the blood of the lamb. And so you've been declared righteous. Uh, You have been justified and declared righteous. That's your right standing before God, not on the basis of what you've done in the past, not on the basis of what you did last weekend, not on the basis of any of those things, although they matter and they build into character and stuff. That is not who you are. You are identified by your relationship in Jesus Christ. That's the truth about who you are. 
But again, church, none of it is going to matter unless we are people of the truth. Like, it, it does you no good if you know it, but you don't really know it because the truth of the matter is you don't really want to know it. It doesn't, I, Paul, Jesus is going to say in John 17, he's praying for his disciples just before the ascension, and he's praying this to the Father. He says, Father, they are not of this world, just as I am also not of this world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. In other words, set them apart by your truth, your truth that you've given to us in the word. Set them apart. Let them be different. Let them hang on to the understanding that there's a God in heaven who not only revealed himself to us in creation and by the trees and by the moon and by the stars, but he's given us his spoken word and he's brought it together in his word, which they would have a couple hundred years later brought together right here. But he's given us his word that we can know him by. Church, we have to be a people that are firmly committed to the truth. I mean, you, you know the stats. I've shared with you guys the stats over and over again. 88% of Americans own a Bible. The average household has, has four and a half Bibles in their home. I don't know how you have a half a Bible. But maybe it's the Jeffersonian Bible or something. It's kind of cut out. But 80% of it believe is sacred. 80% of us are holding this Bible. We say we believe it's actually of God. 61% believe that we w- wish that we would read it more. At the end of the day, only 25% read their Bible on a weekly basis. of that comes from a weekend church service having it read to you, meaning only 7% of us actually read it personally at home because we believe it is a self-revelation of God which glorifies him and is for our good. Church, are you included in that 7%? Are you included in in the people that understand that God has given us a book by which he's poured out his words and his self-revelation? And and it's just pages after pages after pages of, of, of nothing but God the story of humanity from beginning to where we are now to where we're going in the still future. Everything he says is true about himself. Everything he says is true about who we are. Torture does us no good if we suppress it day after day after day. Like how are we gonna discern truth from error if we don't spend time in the truth? How are we going to pass on the faith from one generation to the next if we don't even know the truth and we're unable to pass it on? I love how the psalmist says this. He says, he says it in Psalm 78. He says, we will tell it to the next generation. We will talk about the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, all about his power, the wonderful things that he's done. They will tell their children so they can put their trust in God and faithfully keep his commands. But church, like that's what he's doing. Like He's emphatic about the importance of taking the faith, taking the truth, passing it on from one generation to the next. Parents, like don't ever stop entrusting the truth of God to your children. Don't ever stop entrusting the truth of God's word to your children. Because we understand you're looking at it, it's not just out there. Yes, there is a war for truth that has been taking place from the Garden of Eden. As soon as the deceiver came in at the very beginning, he said, okay, is it really true what God said? Like that war has been taking place from the Garden of Eden and it persists today. And it doesn't just take place out there. What takes place out there, it makes its way in here. And then we too become suppressors of the truth. I praise God for parents that take this seriously to pass on the truth of God's word from one generation to the next. I was listening to Priscilla Shire who's the daughter of the great Tony Evans, a um, hero in the faith for me uh, from a distance. And uh, he, she was talking about this, what it's like to grow up in Tony Evans' church. And she said, you know, a lot of people don't understand this, but like my mom was a stalwart of the faith. It wasn't just the great Tony Evans. She goes, I would wake up in the morning and like, she was already in her office and she was devouring God's word and praying for everybody on the planet. And she goes, then I'd go into the living room and I'd find my dad at his chair and he, was, he had the word of God open and he's devouring it and praying for our family and everybody there on the planet. Like that was the legacy, that was the home that I grew up in. 
And what I loved about it was she, she, she talked about the rhythms that were there in her family. And she says, like, this is a rhythm in her family. I mean, we would come and we would have dinner and we would talk about God's word together. Inevitably, multiple times a week, they would open it up and they'd pass the Bible to one of the kids. They'd read a little section. They'd just ask questions and just talk about it. And she goes, what I loved about what my parents did is they didn't stop when we got older. We became teenagers and it was very, very uncool to do this. But she goes, my parents never stopped passing on the faith. And as teenagers, we got to sit there and as a family and as things, we were going through adolescence and challenges and temptations and so many questions about how to apply God's word in light of the world we were living in today, questions about identity um, and relationships and, and, and all the different things. We got to talk about it as a family and look at it in light of God's word. Church, what are the rhythms that are there in your family? Do you have the rhythms set up already to where you are in a good position to be passing on the faith to your children from wherever they are right now until maturity. I mean, church, can you imagine what it would be like if the rhythms are in place and you who have little ones in your home and stuff right now, that rhythm's in place and so they get to junior high, they get to high school and all the questions about identity, all the questions about sexuality, all the questions about beginnings and the trustworthiness of scripture and all these things, you already had the environment built into your rhythms to be able to talk about these things in light of God's truth. Church, I'm telling you, there's a battle for truth taking place and we have to be equipped. We have to be ready with the understanding and the truth of God's word right in front of us. For some of you, it's not the kids thing. Kids are long gone. Maybe they were never part of the equation. For some of you, it's work and you're walking into very, very hostile territories. You're living in countries right here where you're vastly um, overwhelmed, small minority right there. You have to know the truth of God's word. I'm thinking of my neighbor that would come in and he was telling me about his workplace and he was asking for prayer regarding it. And he said, here's my Bible verses. I'm meditating on them at my desk when, before, I, before work starts. And I have to know God's word to be ready to be able to, to thrive in this environment over here. I'm thinking of people that are very, very lonely in this season. I'm hearing a lot of this and because of COVID and being shut in and being alone. And there's a lot of loneliness at home. And I'm thinking of our good friend, Joyce Sherrod, who is a longtime faithful member here at DBC. And a few years back, she lost her husband. She's a widower now. And um, she moved to go back to California to go be with her family. But we were catching up about a year or so ago. And I was asking her how, she, how it was going. And she goes, you know, I'm really, really lonely here. I miss the church. I miss my friends. And I miss all these people. But the truth of the matter is I'm discovering that Jesus is more than sufficient to satisfy my feelings of loneliness. He's been the companion I've always longed for. And she just told me, just, she just went on just about like all the different ways that Jesus was revealing himself to her in God's word and how satisfying and sufficient it was to feast on the truth of God's word in the middle of loneliness. And church, some of you are there. You need to be hearing that, that Christ is more than sufficient. He has revealed himself to you in the truth of his word. I'm telling you, there is a war at place right now over your mind and over what's true. And the bad news is that we have a long track record of suppressing the truth, either before we came to Christ and saying, you know what, it's not there. And even in Christ, we have a way of just pushing it down and saying, you know what, I don't want to be, I, I don't want to be confronted with the truth of God's word. I know God's truth, but I don't really know God's truth because the truth of the matter is I don't want to know God's truth. Good news is that God has made himself known to us, church. He's not unknowable. He has made himself known to us in creation. He has given us a book that he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. We can read it every single day. And it is page after page after page after page of self-revelation of the almighty God who spoke the world into being. And his word is truth. And it can sanctify you and set you apart today.
And so my hope and my prayer for you and for me today is this, that in a world that routinely suppresses the truth, that we at Dallas Bible Church would be different, that we would meditate on the truth of God's word every single day, that we would find new rhythms in our life to be able to pass it on from one generation into the next. So with that, I'm gonna invite you to pray with me. But Heavenly Father, I do love you and I thank you and I praise you this day that you are not an unknowable God that you have made yourself known to us, not only in the stars and the sky and the beauty of creation, you've given to us your word, you want us to know you, you call us into fellowship uh, with you through your son, Jesus Christ. God, we give you all praise, all glory, and all honor today. Father, I pray that you would set us apart, that you would make us holy through the truth of your word, that we would be men, women, and 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 children that are firmly committed to the truth of your word. God, that your truth would shape us, not the things that we hear outside. God, that you would give us great discernment to be able to discern between true and error. And so, Father, I pray that you would have your way in us. God, that you would have your way in us. God, that it would shape our horizontal relationships with one another, that it would result in the praise and the glory of your name. We love you, God. We thank you. God, I pray these things in Jesus' mighty and holy name. Amen. Amen.